about the week No show What's happening in our streets No show They'll help you understand No show No show well, Welcome to the No Show. My name is Andrea Edwards. My name is Tim Wade. And uh, my name is Joe Augustine. Welcome to a show that seeks to help you think a little bit. And if you're not going to think a little bit, at least you can borrow some stuff to pretend you thought a little bit. <laughs> uh, we try to uh, also bring on a, a guest that makes life a, a little more interesting for all of us. And on this occasion, we have uh, a person who is does the kind of thinking that I'm very much in, in, in awe of, the kind of stuff where you think about what's good and then you try and design uh, for what's good, uh, and then you just go ahead and do it. Um, I wanted to find out his age before this because I could then say our guest is a 72 triple D, uh, but I don't know what his <laughs> age is, but uh, the triple D stands for design, deliver, and delight. It's my pleasure to bring on Graham Harvey, who should come on now to fill in the rest of the blanks as to who <laughs> 69. 99 triple D. There you go. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, about now in my 70th year. So, uh, oh, well. And behind cool. the mic for 35. So. Well, behind the mic, as in, as in what, on radio? No, as in speaking. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I, sorry, I just lost a little bit of esteem there with me, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the one of the reasons um, Graham's part of our global community of professional speakers, and one of the reasons I really wanted to bring Graham on is we we haven't met in person, but he's one of the people that I've really sort of built a relationship on, on social media because I have great respect for his opinions, his ideas, and he's always sharing stuff, and he's uh, definitely aligned to a lot of what I think. Um, he sometimes uh, he's a little bit more bold than I am in what he shares, <laughs> and I know you pay the cost sometimes of that. But, um, yeah, it's really great to have you here, Graham. Do you want to give us a bit of background and let everyone know what you're all about, apart from For being sure. a Perth boy? Um, thanks, Andrea. Yeah, used, well, I'm originally um, from New Zealand, came to Australia in, uh, in 82, and uh, so I've actually lived in Australia for more than I have in New Zealand, but uh, still call New Zealand home. Um, as much as I try, still can't barrack for the Wallabies, so the All Blacks will always be my team. Um, and came to, I'd always spent, I'd been in the travel industry during the 70s and early 80s, came in 82, um, and set up a company here in Western Australia looking after about 20 New Zealand companies. And then in 1986, I purchased a franchise for uh, Success Motivation Institute, which still exists. It's based in Waco in Texas, and I had a team of about 16 people working for me um, in 86. And then uh, 87 came around. You might remember um, Bloody Monday, which the, when the market crashed and my business went west, and as did most of the assets. So then sort of worked on my own and pretty much been on my own ever since. Um, had a slight sabbatical in... Um, 2007, we moved to Albany on the south coast of Western Australia, which is 400k south of Perth, and uh, had six years CEO at the Albany Chamber of Commerce and Industry, which was probably the most successful regional chamber in, in Australia at the time, and um, been back doing what I love. Oh, I still continued speaking and, and coaching while I was doing that, but uh, since 2013, back doing my business coaching and training keynotes. Um, these days, COVID's probably sort of shifted the pendulum a little bit. These days, sort of 50% of my business would be one-on-one um, -on -one coaching clients who are typically uh, business owners or senior managers in organizations. 
and the rest is sort of uh, corporate training. The, the keynote side of things, um, that's very uh, a very small part of my business these days. Um, the reality of it is that PCOs tend not to look towards old, male, pale and stale boomers. They, they, want, they want sexy looking people with sexy sounding subjects on the stage. So uh, I'm a realist, <laughs> I accept that. And um, as one of my good friends said to me a couple of years back, he said, Harves, they want style, not substance. And he said, you and I are substance speakers. So um, anyway, I think there's an element of truth in that. But anyway, I'll just get on and do what I do and, and share my um, thoughts and ideas with people that sort of been gathered over, over many years. So we're back down living on the on the south coast in Albany, which is uh, Western Australia's first European settlement, settled in 1826. Um, so coming up for the bicentenary of Albany in a couple of years, a few years. And um, so I do a fair amount of travel, mainly in the southwest across to the Margaret River region, which I'll be back over there again next week, working with clients um, up in Perth, also with clients. So I sort of do the Albany-Perth-Margaret River triangle. Uh, and that's my my territory um i don't hanker for airplane rides anymore and the least amount of nights i can spend in hotels the better after doing it for so many years it's like the the novelty of hotels and airplanes wore off a long long time ago yeah so. <laughs> yeah so that's it in a nutshell yeah well I'm, I'm a fan of bread pudding so you know all pale and stale is very important for that <laughs> <laughs> And custard, but uh, let's not go there. The uh, no. Albany is a gorgeous part of the world, absolutely yeah. stunning down there. Yeah, it's um, no, it is a nice part. We have uh, it's one of the rare places in Australia we have no traffic lights, even though there's a population of 38,000 people. We have no traffic lights, they're just, just roundabouts, and um, there would be a major political coup if anyone ever decided to put a traffic light in Albany. Um, so we have things like our traditional Saturday morning farmers market, which is rated as one of the best in Australia. The produce is all grown by the, the people. So the people who are selling it are the people who have grown it, growing it. We've great beaches. There's islands offshore. Um, it's and compatible with my Kiwi jeans on a day like today. It's probably ten to fifteen degree, degrees cooler than Perth. So uh, um, I'm very happy about that. <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy visiting your part of the world, which I've been to many many times. But uh, I got to tell you, I struggle with the the heat and the humidity of Singapore. But love the place; it's one of my favourite cities. Well, what's twenty degrees between friends? Um, <laughs> so a little bit about the format of the show. Uh, we will uh, get down to the heart of it where we talk uh, with Greb about his uh, his area. Uh, but we start off by talking about the news and the things that have been happening in the world. We're not uh, generalists. We're specific about the, the area that we're interested in. Uh, so Andrea leads us off in that department. She does all the reading and typing. We just look at the emails and go like, ooh, that's a lot. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but at least she reads sometimes, right? Uh, all right, so we'll get in, we'll get stuck into the news that really struck a chord this week. So, the World Inequality Report for 2022 came out this week. Did you guys have a chance to have a look at least at the executive report? Yeah, right. did. I know, I know, Tim, you, you you were involved in some conversations about it on social media as well. The 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 findings. I don't think anyone's really surprised, especially not us. You know, and it's at the core of our global challenges right now. But I wanted to just provide a few statistics. All right, from an income perspective, the richest 10% of the global population currently takes 52% of global income, 
whereas the poorest half of the population earns 8% of it. But when it comes to wealth, the poorest half of the world, of the global population barely owns 2%. The richest 10% owns 76% of all global wealth. And basically the report is saying that inequality is is, is a political choice. It's not an, an, an inevitability. Easy enough for you to say, right? Uh, but basically income and wealth inequalities have been on the rise since the 80s. And I, I found this statement around the 80s, you know, the 1st of January 1970 is when the um, climate crisis is measured from as escalating. But if you look at the industrialization of food, uh, the climate crisis, basically since the 80s, everything's going up and, you know, surprise, surprise. But it's all based on the deregulization and liberalization programs that have happened in different countries around the world in different ways. One good piece of news that well, this isn't good. Inequality has increased within countries, but in the past two de decades, global inequalities between countries have declined. So that's that's a good news, right? Nations have become richer, but governments have become poorer, which means the totality of wealth is now in private hands. And I think this this is one of those things in the report that make should make everyone sort of pay attention. If governments have no money to spend, they can't tackle things like inequality or the climate crisis. So it's a really important thing. We know that billionaires increased their um, their worth during COVID. Since '95, billionaires' wealth has risen from 1% to more than 3%, and 2020 marked the steepest increase in the global billionaire's share of wealth on record. So it's not even remotely going in, in the other direction. Two key points that were raised, and then we can have a chat about it. One, equality. was They didn't um, include equality in the 2018 report. They've included in this. So women's income, total income from work, and this is labour, not the unpaid stuff that women do the majority of. In 1990, it was 30%. 2020 today, or 2022, it's 35%. So we've only increased by 5%. If we were in a truly equal world, women's pay for labour would be 50-50. Uh, the other thing is quite climate inequalities, and we've talked about this a lot, and we talked about it when we were talking about COP26, but it's a critical part of addressing the climate crisis. So basically global income and wealth inequalities are tightly connected to ecological inequalities and to inequalities in contribution to climate change. The top 10% of emitters are responsible for close to 50% of all emissions, the bottom 50%, 12%. So they've got all these other recommendations that they've got. We've got to start uh, uh, you know, making basically making the wealthy polluters pay and contribute tax so that we can solve the climate crisis. So it's a very wide-ranging piece. I recommend everyone reads it. Uh, to me, if we don't address this, so the inequalities of climate change, if we don't address it, the poorest people in the world will have to pay the highest cost. They have to pay more for energy. They're in countries that are going to suffer. We're seeing the right-wing politicians in Europe talking about putting up walls, keeping them out. So the people who created it are not going to take care of the people who are suffering from it. So it's a, a very comprehensive and powerful report. Thoughts? 
Well, I, I, what, what I'm struck by actually is a kind of a um, baseline assumption that money going to the, the that, that that the inequality automatically means a bad thing. And 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 before you all kill me at the same time, um, here here's what I'm thinking. Right, uh, th what happened this past couple of years was uh, a climate of real fear in terms of uh, the markets and everything. We went through a lot of that. Right. And it's happening in in almost every one of the the, the markets that I'm exposed to. I'm I'm you know I'm doing work in in not doing work, but I'm I'm participating in the crypto market, for instance, right? And in the time of fear, there's a it's not a redistribution. It actually is a time of accumulation. Uh, the wealthy uh, who are very brave, you know, uh, are going to pick up uh, a lot, and they're gonna they're gonna usually increase their share when things are are fearful. That's just the way uh, it, it's kind of always been. Uh, but th there is also something that I, I think is interesting, as in, like, uh, we've had we've had governments doing what they're doing or not doing what they're doing, uh, and then we talk about the shift of, of wealth towards private, you know, like 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 private wealth. Um, is it not possible that we could have a situation where there are more uh, billionaires uh, who could do something? You know about things. You know, do we, do we could, could we not do with more Bill Gateses? Could we not do with more but Warren Buffetts? Um, and in, in the crypto space, I'll tell you that, that there are a bunch of, uh, of 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 people who. I mean, it, it's a space filled with, with with a lot of scum, but it's also filled with a lot of people who have come back and 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 decided to do good things. Right? They're people who made the big fortunes, and they're investing in in projects to do with health, uh, and 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 they're trying to do good as well. So. I'm I'm curious about this, as in, like, if you have if you have a if it's possible, I don't know, you know, if it's likely, but if it's possible, that we have more wealthy people, but also with an intention to do more good with it, wouldn't that be a good thing? Could it be not a good thing? Well, I mean, it depends on. I mean, you know, what's their priority? You know, Bezos wants to go to space. <laughs> Musk wants to go to space. You know, it's kind of like you know, it's not really the priority that we need to. As a global society, um, there's, no, there's I mean, nothing. Not everybody's going to be aligned that way, but they're going to be people who want to try and like, like uh, at, at, at the same time, we have these projects that are trying to 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 to, to change the way things work. There's some really big ideas uh, which could not take off. I think I, I think a government wouldn't be able to to to, to justify uh, taking a a moonshot, so to speak, um, mm -hmm. and something that might change the way. You know, uh, plastics are taken care of, for instance, just too 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 big of a crazy idea. Uh, but if if they have that capacity to do that now, and because of that extra, you know, sort of uh, wealth that they have now to do it, uh, they, they could now discretionarily do more about that. I I mean, I'm, I I know it's very hopeful, and I know the natural assumption is well, you got to be billionaires because you you know how to exploit situations. Um, but you know, uh, I I I. I I'm also a little troubled by the automatic assumption that 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 it it indicates that it's a bad thing. Um, I, I I, I'm automatically assuming that, but my, my when I have a look at it, uh, there was a there was a couple of different things that really stood out. But just to uh, go on to Joe's point about is billionaires having it a bad thing? Look, the good part about having somebody that is. Uh, wealth in the hands of an entity that is not defined by geographical boundaries, but that entity can operate globally is an interesting one. 
Um, so then you've got people like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that were doing a lot of work in Africa to try and eradicate malaria. And nobody else was really being bothered with that at a truly large global sort of level. So when that sort of stuff happens, that's interesting. But when when it's a, when it's a sort of a, a genitalia comparison competition with getting into space, um, <laughs> then, then it just seems to be a little bit on the peculiar side. Uh, that That said... The the thing that was most troubling to me there was there was three things that when, when I read the report that really sort of stuck out. One was the quote, "Inequality is not inevitable; it is a political choice," mm-hmm. and and that that really sort of came out and went, "Huh." And then so that means because the governments are, are making policies that are aligning with individual acquisition. The other thing that sort of lo- sort of whispered to me without much without me going into the numbers at all but looking at some of those graphs is if individual wealth is going up and government wealth is going down it it just sounds like it's being channeled out of government coffers it's like people are being taxed and then that's going into to individuals and it, it just it just smelt of something untoward um, <laughs> and it's yeah. the nicest way I could possibly say that and well, then the I, but, if, but, if I could just, just, just sorry, just, just add to that. I mean, just so that you know, like I say, it's been it's been a couple of bad years for 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 most governments. I don't think any government has has done particularly well with COVID. <laughs> so you know, if you, if we were talking about where we would expect wealth to go at a government level, it it should very well go down. Uh, so I, what I'm saying is, yeah, there's some something that you would read on that and go like, absolutely, it's it sounds terrible and exploitative, but. What really happened? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying that. Yeah, fair enough. That's a fair enough yeah. one with COVID, with regards to going into their coffers to help, you know, to help people. That that one's okay. But the the thing about you know Singapore wanting to build uh, a, a dikes for want of a better description around the country to stop sea levels rising, um, well, not to stop sea levels rising, but to stop rising sea levels from impacting the country. Uh, you know, that's going to require a lot of money. And for other countries that aren't as small to be able to do things to tackle climate change is going to be real and significant. And as Andrea said, one of the things coming out of it is with government coffers going down, addressing mm. wild, you know, large-scale concerns like that. So then, so then for billionaires to come in and go, I'm going to be the knight in shining armor that's going to solve this problem, it's, it seems to be contrary to the nature of which is what Joe was saying of billionaire acquisition and and culturally across what what we see as the society as this sort of western society but really global now of capitalism in in a large sense it 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 does say to me when i'm looking at this report it does say that um you know our whole thing is about is about more for me. And when it says inequality is not inevitable, it's a political choice. We can point the fingers at government, but actually we're voting for the government that's usually got mm. the best deal for our pocket. Usually, right? So in fact, we're perpetrating the whole thing. And the government goes, no, less taxes. Uh, oh, I'm going to vote for them because that's better for me. I've got more cash in my pocket at the end of the month. Uh, but really, that's that's the, 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 the outcome of the report was we need to tax, we need to tax the, the, the rich. The the thing is everybody's okay with that until they become in the bracket. Yeah. 
And so as soon as you're in the bracket, you're going, I don't agree with that anymore. But we're okay so long as somebody else is getting taxed. And when we look at that that graph of you know extremely rich people, actually, if you look at where you sit on that graph, I think the the, the people on this call and a lot of people listening to it would be in the higher level. If you're listening to this, there's a good chance you're at the very high level of that of that graph. So yeah. we're basically voting to tax ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's it's usually when we'd say, well, no, I don't really want that to happen. I'm happy for billionaires to be taxed because I'm not a billionaire. But you know, so it's right, I, right. I, I guess my yeah. summary is I like I like what the report is saying. I just don't see how it can possibly be implemented because the people that keep people in government are the ones that have the billions to fund various bits and pieces. And if you do something against me, I'll just get you get rid of you next next election or before. Yeah, but, but it, it always go back why we're where we are today as a global society is because of what we've created. And what yeah. we've created is not, is, isn't good enough. So e- Europe is the most equal of all of the regions in the world. And I think, you know, looking to Europe to just to shrink it down a little bit, right? We've got to shrink our lifestyles down anyway. So it's, to me, it's all about that. And the richest in the world contributing to solving the problems. But hand it over to Graham. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, when you say it's like what we have created, I think it's it's effectively those who hold the power. It's what they have created. I was interested, I was reading a uh, report this morning from uh, Robert Reich, who is an American commentator who I uh, follow. And uh, he's had some interesting things about equality. So it was very timely for um, today's show. In it was to do with the ratio between CEO pays and worker pay. In 1965, the ratio was 21 to 1. In 1989, it had blown out to 61 to 1. Now, 2021, 351 to 1. Now, when you say about what we've created, that effectively was a result of decisions made to change the remuneration structure of, of corporate CEOs, primarily in the US, and it's basically spread like wildfire since. And it was basically changing their remuneration from a salary to stock options. So that effectively then put the, the again, going back to what Tim was saying, ultimately people will do, some, somewhat cynically, people will do what's in their best interest. Um, so that's where we a lot of people sort of make their decisions from. So... The whole thing was shifted to stock options. So therefore, the drivers of Wall Street became CEOs driving uh, short-term profits over the next Wall Street quarter, which, of course, drove up their stock prices, which drove up their stock options, which has now created this blowout where the average rate, you know, CEO wage to worker wage is 351 to 1. Um, you know, we've seen it here in Australia over the past few years. Average wage rates have, have basically been around about 2% annual where have profits, corporate profits have increased on average about 30% per annum. So, I mean, it's just a complete distortion. Um, I get into trouble a little bit because I'm not a fan of Milton Friedman, who years ago said that the, the, the reason for corporations to exist is to maximise shareholder returns. Um, I think that's the root of a lot of the, lot of the problem. Um, I believe as a CEO that your first responsibility is to your staff, your staff's responsibility is to your customers, and only when you take care of your customers will you actually take care of your, your shareholders. But unfortunately, in many organizations, the whole thing is us about face where 
uh, CEOs go, well, no, my, my responsibility is to my board and to my shareholders. And effectively, um, the customers are just an interruption to my day rather than realizing without the customers, they don't actually don't have a business. Um, the interesting thing also is about this thing called wealth. Now, typically, we're talking in these reports talk about wealth in terms of dollars. I think one of the great things that's come out of COVID, and it's sort of tied up with this phrase, you know, the great resignation where, um, you know, people around the world, and I've seen some reports where up to 60% of employees surveyed have said they would leave their job um, tomorrow for higher pay. In other words, the loyalty factor is is, is, pretty, is pretty low. But I, um, so what's happening is a lot of people are going, you know what, I've been laid off. I'm actually jack of working for, you know, particularly in places like hospitality and tourism where I've sort of been at the beck and call of my uh, my bosses where I've been told to turn up and on minimum wage and so on and so forth. And this great resignation has had a lot of people suddenly sit back and go, you know what, um, there's more to life than just earning a paycheck. So they're really doing an internal assessment of what's important to them. And I remember years ago, I, there was a, when I lived up in Perth, there was a the front page of the local um, newspaper and it was uh, a very probably one of the top boys schools here in Perth and there were three Buddhist monks who were um, speaking to these boys you know obviously from the western leafy suburbs all probably the, the sons of uh, wealthy people because you'd need to have a good paycheck to pay the fees to go there but the headline that's always stuck with me it said um, the the people with nothing talking to the kids with everything. And then the byline was, I wonder who's happier. So I think it's this whole reflection, and I think probably the fact that having been around the sun a few times, you get to the point where, you know, what really is important? What is true wealth? Um, you know, having time to sort of play on the ground, play on the floor, outside in the grass, kicking the soccer ball around with your with your grandkids. I mean, that to me is wealth. Um, you know, it's the old thing, you know, who who dies with most toys still dies. And mm-hmm. so I think this COVID thing is, is, is causing a lot of people to sit back and reflect as to what actually is important to them. So I think that's a positive to come out of it. Um, but what's interesting about the, um, the incomes, one of the things that's topical here in Australia at the moment is when the government came out with its JobKeeper wage subsidies last year when COVID first hit, where effectively um, people were being paid pretty much $750 a week um, to, to stay at home and um, for, for, well, it was a subsidy to businesses to keep their employees on the payroll, even though there was no job to go to. And what was interesting is that at the same time, unemployment benefits were also raised dramatically and the poverty level um, in Australia shrank dramatically. But of course, the people on those minimum wages, they spend every dollar that comes in. They're not saving and stuff. So it was actually a positive boost to the economy because the po- because the poor suddenly had money in their pockets. Now, of course, the great debate is, well, we need to have a look at this because there's, you know, there are, there are schools of thought that want to support this, um, what they call a living wage, which is not unemployment benefit. It's actually an amount, again, coming from the government, so going back to Tim's comment, effectively that's only can do that by raising taxes. But the actual beneficiaries of having a living wage 
are in fact the middle and upper class because it's people spending money at their respective businesses. But for some reason, it seems around the world, it's um, it's poor people deserve to be poor because they didn't get off their ass and earn an income and it's their fault that they are poor. And in the reality of it is, in most instance, instances, poverty is not a choice. They are victims of circumstance. If you're born on the wrong side of the tracks and you're a third-generation welfare recipient, you know, you've got hell's own chance of getting back up into the middle, middle classes and stuff. And last comment, which I thought was very cynical the other day and also probably underpins a lot of what we're talking about, it was a, it was a cynical meme on, on social media, but, again, a lot of these memes are steeped in reality. It said, uh, the poor pay wages, the middle-class pay accountants, and the wealthy pay politicians. And I think there's an element of truth in that comment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this is one of those topics that we could talk about. <laughs> Forever. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and have different views. I mean, I think um, take, taking government out, financially out, like you were talking for me, it's universal basic income, right, yeah. um, is actually a part of the solution for the future, especially with robotics, automation, you know, like less human need to, to have jobs. So what are we going to do with the people? And so, I mean, just, just that in itself is a huge topic. But um, should we move on to COVID? If anyone's got any, wants to make any comments, got any um, uh, suggestions, whatever that we're, we're talking about, jump on. Um, so COVID. So last week we were talking about it and basically we're all in agreement. We've got a couple of weeks. Let's hang loose. I think, did you guys feel the lack of frenzy around COVID this week. It wasn't as bad as the week before. You got yeah, the article yeah. certainly supported the view of don't panic, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. It was kind yep. of kind of a bit of a relief, wasn't it? And yep. uh one of the one of the articles, it was in the Economist, I think the BioNTech BioNTech boss. So I think let me read his name, Uga Sahin. So he's yep. the guy with his wife who invented the mRNA vaccine, which is of course Pfizer. Um yeah, he seemed a bit ambivalent about it all and basically said may need a tweak. We can get a new new version out by 2022, but as long as you get three shots, you should be fine. So he was he was cool, calm and collected. And uh, I don't know, I like those guys. I think they're I think they're very cool. Um but then the CEO of Moderna, um, he was a lot more uh, foreboding and he basically said there would be a material drop in vaccine effectiveness. And the who basically said that uh, Omicron poses a very high global risk. And, of course, stock markets were impacted, which I'm sure you noticed, Joe. So we've seen lots of things going on. So in the UK, moving to um, their Plan B, which is obviously having a lot of pushback. But uh, Omicron is expected to become the dominant strain within weeks over there. And it makes me obviously wonder if they'll be hosting a Christmas party at number 10, uh, which, of course, they will lie about. Um, you know, we've got countries <laughs> like Denmark introducing restrictions. India's I got, thought that we, already had it, Andrea. No, that was last year. They've got, an, <laughs> obviously, another one coming up this year. Um, th that's been another funny side of the news. Well, no, some people don't think it's funny, but, I, you know, amusing. Um, India's got multiple cities now which are reporting its first cases, and they're, they're, very, they're very scared about a third wave like the last one um, and whether or not... The immunity, the natural immunity in, in the community is going to be strong enough. Um, Australia basically thinks that Omicron could be a blessing in disguise because while more, cont more contagious, it seems more and more that it's not as bad. Mm. But, of course, again, missing the message of the viruses, they continue to mutate. 
But uh, Barnaby so, Joyce. Can I just understand that one? So is the idea that everyone will get it, their bodies will resist it, it'll be fine, and then we're good to go with any other variant? Is that kind yeah, of we, the thinking? Basically, we shouldn't be we shouldn't yeah. be overwhelming the hospitals because it's not that bad, right? All yeah. right. Yeah. So let's. But we I mean, don't know that. There, we don't know that for of... sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, if it's true, it's good. But we don't. We're not. We're not there yet, right? I think basically you need to be jabbed and then you need that one to go past you so your body can fight it and then you're all good to go. Yeah, basically. And uh, <laughs> Barnaby Joyce, Australia's Deputy Prime Minister, who um, he's leader of the National Party and not a man I like very much, um, he, uh, he, he's, he picked up COVID in the UK. He's now quarantining in the US. And I would just like to offer him my thoughts and prayers. So we are still in uh, a bit of Hang limbo. On a <laughs> We are, we already Excuse me. I, I, I have a little pet snail here that just shriveled up and died. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my canary in the coal mine that just died with that comment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we're still in limbo. Probably got another week. Um, it's, a, it's an evolving story. What about you guys? What were you picking up around COVID? Well, the thing about Omicron for me and, and about uh, us in Singapore right now is I don't know what we're going to do, as in like, um, you know, let, let's say we get to the point where we go like Omicron isn't that bad, right? Are we going to do what, what the, the parents used to do with the measles parties, right? You got a kid with measles, we'll bring everyone over so we can get all the kids having measles before they realize how dangerous that was, right? Uh, because in terms of what actually makes sense and what science says should be a good thing based on our vaccination rates. The moment we establish that Omicron really isn't as bad, um, you know, in terms of all the outcomes, we should purposefully, you know, infect ourselves with it. We, we, we should do that because that's the thing that's actually going to protect us and make us not invincible, but at least, you know, it, it's going to reduce it basically to, to less lethal than the flu. Right, and that and that would be the actual thing. And and I, I was wondering about the difficult task ahead for the government to do that, right? It, because that that really would be what you should do, you know. Here, here's something. Well, you know, like like right now, if if I was if I was in charge, so this is me putting on my parent who who, who created Santa Claus for the kids. Okay, just uh, before at, you, just before you say that, Joe. If yep. Joe was in charge, so Joe's views are not necessarily the views of the no-show or anybody else on the show. Go <laughs> ahead, Joe. <laughs> if, I, if I was in charge, um, at this point, if Omicron kind of crept into Singapore, I might go like, yeah, okay, we can, you know, let's not worry too much about that. Because it, 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 if I knew that for sure that it wasn't going to be as serious that's the one that I want to have. Like, if you could choose the COVID, you 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 got to expose yourself to. It sounds like the choice would be, I'll have an Omicron, thank you very much, and would you mind some peanuts, right? <laughs> yeah. So that that's the kind of idea that I have. It, it it seems almost like we should just get it in, get it around, and 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 be done with it. Because when I when I thought about what happens in Singapore, is if we don't get Omicron in, and it isn't really you know spreading, it, if we manage to successfully keep Omicron out, and what we have is a country where if we have a breakout, it's going to be Delta. Mm. And you've already got a Delta breakout, right? So is there any evidence, Mr. Science Shirt, yes. um, that that if somebody has Omicron, they're not going to get Delta? Yeah, there is. Uh, essentially, it's about the, the – the, you, do, you do get a, a whole virus exposure, which gives you uh, resistance to it. So, yeah, if you, do, if you do get Omicron – I mean, that's why, that's why 
uh, your your existing vaccinations are going to have some uh, effect as well. Not as good as with the with the previous uh, variants, but you're going to have some uh, you're going to have some resistance. And when it's exposed to the new variant, the, the body learns. And then that that becomes uh, it goes into your memory, uh, your T cells memory, and uh, it get called up again. So there is uh, there is evidence that you will get less, you you be less susceptible, uh, not immune, but less susceptible to the future ones. Because like with with Omicron, what what's interesting is uh, reinfection rates are actually high. So you you're you're actually able to have had COVID and Omicron. You can still catch Omicron because it's it's different enough. So it's it's likely to be like the way the common cold is, you know, we, we get the common cold, we get over it, we're well for a while, and then sometime down the road, we catch the cold again. Uh, but if you have, if you have a, a less, a disease, that, a, a, a virus that causes uh, less disease, uh, that's kind of a good thing. I think people need to have a virus catching plan that involves <laughs> either fasting or giving up smoking at the same time. Because you can't smell anything, so you're not going to be triggered. Okay, anyway, that's, I mean, it does, you, what you said, Joe, kind of makes sense. It's not but, the first time I've heard that. Yeah, <laughs> but, interesting yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, go ahead, an interesting, interesting, looking at COVID from a slightly different perspective. I had an interesting chat with one of my coaching clients this morning who said, oh, I need to run this past you. He said, I'm... I'm having a real values dilemma because one of the things that's been mandated here in Western Australia is that uh, you have to be double vaccinated to um, come the end of this month to dine at a restaurant. And also staff of the restaurant also have to be double vaccinated to be able to work at the restaurant. So he was saying, he said, I have a major values conflict about mandating the, um, the the double shot double jab for my staff he said I, I encourage them and everything else he said but you know basically throwing young people out on the street because they um by their rights they choose not to have a vaccine but in doing so i can no longer employ them and he said i'm i'm just having this real um values dilemma because it's it doesn't sit well with me so we had this long discussion and he felt better in the end i said at the end of the day I don't believe you actually are compromising your values by having to lay people off because they're making the choice not to get vaccinated. I said, because effectively what you're doing is just honouring the legislation, like all the other pieces of legislation that impact your, your business. So I understand the internal dilemma that you're having. I said, but this is actually not a values decision on your behalf because your values aren't being compromised. You are effectively yep. duty bound to obey the law of the land, which requires your staff to be double vaccinated. Um, but I said, at the end of the day, because you're a loving human being and he runs a very successful restaurant, I said, that's why you have people want to come and work for you because of who you are. I said, but don't feel trapped that this is a values judgment on your part. It's not. It's a, It's just basically implementing the legislation of the land. Yeah. Mm. It would be a tough one, though. To Oh, very tough, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, as, as someone who believes in the vaccine, I'm also um, I'm also a vaccine hesitant sympathizer. I, I really mm-hmm. I really feel for them because, yep. uh, you know, like like my, my sister, my sister is a, a, a brilliant uh, mathematician and very scientific. Um, and her conclusion is that it's it's too soon to do something with the, the vaccine. There's not enough evidence or whatever. It is, and so she's not going to do it. She, she's decided not to do that. 
and she's made choices. She's she's a, a teacher in Australia, and so you know the rule: if you don't if you don't get vaccinated in Australia, you can't teach eventually. Yeah. Uh, so she's she's uh, made a decision, and she's uh, basically set up her own business online, and she's going to give you know she's going to teach math online, and that's that's her new thing. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I I do feel for those people who who, who can't who can't uh, get over the fear of what is unknown. There are certain things that are unknown. There are certain things that are still, you know, uh, we, we, we do have to, to balance off the statistics. Uh, right. It is factually incorrect to say that there are no risks with uh, taking the vaccine. Right. Uh, we factually know that it gives you some, uh, a, a, good, a good amount of protection. Uh, but at the same time, there is on the, on, on the flip side of it, uh, a bunch of stuff that does happen and has been reported to happen, and we're still learning a bit more about those things. So, you know, uh, th- th- there's some things that we're that that that, that there, there's some concern about, uh, like cardiac events uh, following vaccines. Uh, the, you know, that the, they're not um, they're, they're, it, at scale they're negligible, but you know, we we still buy lottery tickets even though there's a very low chance we'll win. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but it's like we've always said, we've got to agree on consensus and go in our direction together and yeah. or, we're, or we're never going to get to the end of this, right? So yeah. anyway, so probably next week we might have a little bit more um, maybe even peer-reviewed research on uh, Omicron. Until then, just, you know, stay cool. Let's see what happens. Um, on the environment front. It's, it's OM, isn't it? Omicron, yeah. isn't it OM? <laughs> yeah. Okay. At least we're all getting a handle on the Greek alphabet as it goes through. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, next so, we've got a pie, haven't we? Uh, yeah, we lift out G uh, for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> X, XI. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That would be not, not, not politically <laughs> sensitive. Um, so uh, there was a wonderful story, I think it's in The Guardian, and the title is Fish Whoops and Growls Recorded on Restored Reef. So basically, there's a reef off the <laughs> off the coast of Indonesia. I just love the idea of fishes whipping um, off off the coast of Indonesia, and um, it you know just centuries or decades of um, explosive fishing. So they're putting what do you call it dynamite into the ocean to get mm. the fish to come up, and it completely destroys the coral, of course. But it can't regrow because the there's nothing for the coral to sort of hang on to because it's just devastation. Anyway, so it's a really great piece as well as which includes some some uh, recordings of the sounds of, of a coral reef. If you've ever been diving, you'll know how magnificent <laughs> that is. Uh, did any of you guys read the article, 11 Brands call out, Called Out for Greenwashing in 2021? I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so Eco Business, um, this is one of the environment publications that I subscribe to. Just really want to re- encourage everyone, whether it's Eco Business or one of the other ones, please spend money on these publications so we can support this really important journalism. But, um, yeah, give me your favourite uh, greenwashing from the Paper article. bottle. Oh, paper, paper bottle. bottle. Yeah, <laughs> so that was a Kore- Korean company that had a paper sort of cardboard around a bottle and they cut it and it's a plastic bottle underneath. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yes. It was basically my art project from when I was seven, right? It's the, it's the yeah. paper mache. <laughs> You're supposed to pull the plastic bottle out before distributing it. Yeah. 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 Um, the, Alliance to end pop, uh, the, the Alliance to End Plastic Waste is um, Singapore-based uh, not-for-profit. 
but it's backed by big oil and chemical companies, so Shell, ExxonMobil and Dow. And they published a story on its website in November, which they've been caught out on this article, and it's headlined, Why Proper proper Waste Management is More Important Than Going Plastic Free. So basically they're trying to encourage the continuing growth of the plastic industry. We just need to do a better job of getting rid of the waste. Um, And and to me, this is just a mind-boggling one. Yes, we do need to sort out how proper waste management, but we also need to reduce waste because we know that the petrochemical companies are absolutely banking on continued growth in the plastics market because it's actually one of the areas that they feel that um, there's an income guarantee. Uh, but also, but the top top of the pops for me is the uh, carbon-neutral hydrocarbons. So mm. a new trend in 2021 is uh, the oil and gas industry advertising that they're carbon-neutral because they have bought, uh, they have offset enough that they can now claim neutrality. I would suggest that they need to go back to the beginning of when their companies first came into being. And um, yep. once they once they offset all of that, then maybe they can start saying something like that. But yeah, well, you could you could plant fifty billion trees in the desert. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a bit like religious absolution. You you know sin during the week and get abs get absolved on Sundays and then basically defile the planet again next week and then repeat the process on Sunday. It's just crazy. So raised Catholic then, huh? No, no, Anglican, <laughs> high Anglican. Yeah, same oh. thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was always one of my takeaways. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, so anyway, gr- greenwashing, something we've talked a lot about. Mm. The final thing on the environment. So... um I subscribe to a whole bunch of newsletters, and this hasn't been published in the Guardian yet, but I'll but I'll share a link if it is. It's called "We're Locked in a Vicious Cycle of Wide Wildfires and Polluting Emissions." And so basically, in the last twelve months have been horrendous from a wildfire perspective, and we've seen it sort of growing. Um, and and this report shows that wildfires are intense, prolonged, and devastating. Yes, we know that. This this year. Um, they have caused an estimated total of 1,760 megatons of carbon emissions, just the world's wildfires. This is more than twice the annual carbon emissions from Germany, the whole country. The issue that we're that this is creating, right, and this is why we've got to get on top of this stuff, it's going to become a feedback loop, basically. by We've got rising temperatures and prolonged periods of drought, which is caused by the climate crisis, which is going to lead to frequent and more intense wildfires that in turn raise global greenhouse gas emissions and the concentration of carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere, and thus we are hastening the climate breakdown. So every year we see these fires getting worse and worse and worse. It's also adding to the, the timescale that they're moving towards. So all the timescales that we read... <laughs> Like people go, oh, it's twenty one hundred. Don't worry about it. And it's like, no, no, no it's not twenty one hundred. It's right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I haven't got anything to add to that one, but I was, I was just, uh, just thinking a little bit about, you know, a while ago, you're talking about planting those trees in the desert, um, and and what I, what I do. But I do think about it's how much we're, we're, we're quick to, to sort of say like, oh, what a ridiculous idea. Um, 
because I think when, when I when I first actually to be to be fair when I when I read an article about that as well I, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of divided I don't go in thinking that yeah you've you've definitely done some greenwashing there um, because I think about I think about the challenge of 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 making a desert green and I know it's one of those things where we just assume that's not going to work we can't do it um, but. It, all, all, all ridiculous things start off as ridiculous. I mean, all, you know, they, they all start off as ridiculous ideas. The big, the big ones, right? And if for some crazy reason, if the ego of someone saying that we want to do something like this uh, drives uh, company, drives technology to say, you know what, let's 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 make the let's make the Sahara green. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's it's kind of like because you 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 signed a social check, you sort of said. We're gonna do this, and maybe we can start doing it. You know, I'm 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 of that kind of uh, thing because I, yeah, yeah, it is vaporware, but so is a lot of Singapore. You know, I look around Singapore, and you really think about what we've got here. Um, where where Singapore is, if if anything, we're just built entirely on an idea that we can do this, and then we did. Yeah. yeah. So, so maybe there's something to it. Wouldn't it be wonderful? I mean, if not the entire Sahara, just you know, like like those those first five million trees. Why not? Right. But, but the problem, the, goes, problem with, the problem with this one is it's Saudi Arabia that's going to plant yeah. these trees, and they're still going to be pulling their oil out of the ground. So it's not like yeah. they're going to plant yeah. the trees and stop a behaviour that's creating the problem. Yeah, you know that that's kind of the, well, to me that's the problem. Well, the well the other major problem is that there's no significant water resources at all, and and very little rainfall, which require so all their water needs to be desalinization. And so they're going to have to create infrastructure to desalinate the water to pour on the 50 billion trees. I mean, you could show photos of people in airplanes throwing seeds out and going, "How you know, we planted it. That's what we said we were going to do. We never said they were going to survive. Yeah, like the ones in Dubai, right? (laughs) I mean, so so it's, you know, I, I agree with Joe. The, the thing about Singapore, the difference between Singapore is if they didn't do anything, everyone would have died in in <laughs> other places where they make this promise. If they don't do it, it's a bit of a so what. I think the difference is, Tim, that if you look at what happened in Singapore, there was a financial return on what was done in Singapore. To go and just simply plant 50 billion trees in the Sahara, because of the capitalist structure in which we operate in, unless you've got some... I forget the guy's name. He's that Dutch guy that bought several thousand square kilometres of Amazon forest. Yeah, And so effectively that comes back to the altruism of the billionaires that we talked right back at the beginning. It's like those sorts of people are the ones who are buying up the the rainforest. They're the ones who are sort of likely to to spend the, the money to plant the trees because they're not actually looking for a quarterly Wall Street um, return on the investment of planting the trees. So it's it, we sort of come back full circle unless there is a um, almost an immediate financial return on making that investment. Uh, everyone goes, well, I'm not going to do it because that's why it's the you know the the, the philanthropists of the, you know, the the Bills and Melinda Gates and the Warren Buffetts of those sorts of people who who you're reliant upon to um, take the initiative to do it because of their from a heart space, not from a financial headspace. That's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so some other news. So we were talking about the um, uh, the 
the boycott of the Chinese Winter Olympics and the US, UK, Canada and Australia have come out and said they are boycotting Mm-hmm. but only as far as not sending their government representatives so the diplomats aren't going. China says to any country that boycotts the game, they will pay the price for their mistaken acts, so fighting talks. And uh, uh, Macron from France came out today and he just said it shouldn't be about politics. If you either you either want to do a complete boycott and send none of your athletes or you come up with better ways of creating change. Uh, yeah. So, I, I, you know, n- not surprising. Um, and a headline to look out for in my weekend reads is called A 975-Day Nightmare, How the Home Office Forced a British Citizen citizen into Destitution Abroad. So this is part of the Windrush scandal. Did any of you guys have a chance to read this story? It's one of the long reads. Yeah, no, I, I, no. The summary would be no. So, Good. But I understand this guy was stuck in Ghana and couldn't get home. Yeah, it was, and it was a terrible story. I mean, a really, really terrible story, and he's he's – He's he's been so harmed by this, you know. He lost a relationship with his children because his children just presumed it was his decision, and they and he abandoned them. He couldn't ring them because he didn't have any money. He was literally on the streets. Um, he wasn't treated well by his family back there because he never knew them. He couldn't even speak the language. So blah blah blah. But it's a whole it's a whole story. This whole Windrush thing, which I haven't paid as much attention to as people who'd be impacted by it, of course. But just government incompetence. They're not taking care of the people, but also how uh, how, pe- how people's pain is funded from a government perspective, how lawyers decide that your pain is worth £10,000 and your pain is mm-hmm. worth £100,000. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty heartbreaking story. But another story of the week, complete opposite, um, an example of an arsehole in our world. Better.com CEO fires 900 employees over Zoom. Did you guys see that story? Did you see the yeah, video? I did. I mean, for God's sake, really? It, it, to me, in this world, like, really? Like, I, how, how? How does that happen? You know, we've I think seen you're being, I think you're being kind. Crying. I think Lord you're being asshole. kind calling him an asshole. It's worse uh, than that. Yeah, it's just, just but completely detached from what's going on in the world. It was shocking. Well, it's similar to that guy that took over the company that uh, was at the – EpiPens or shots in America and basically drove up the price from 100 bucks or to 750 or don't quote me exactly on the figures but it was like and at the end of the day when he was interviewed it's like well my company I'll do what I like yeah but what about the people that can't afford it well that's their problem not mine I'm in business to make money and if people suffer well so be it it's like yeah just amazing yeah yeah I just can't get my head around that sort of mentality yeah I can understand. So, so what what what's happening there is that is that people are selling themselves on the values conflict, on the ethical dilemma, and they and they're finding a way that uh, that gives them the get out of jail free card to be that that kind of person. And it's 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 not ethically right. So, what we're having a problem with is is the ethics of it. Because yeah. by the rule books, it's the same as what everybody else is doing. It's just not ca- causing the harm. You know, the EpiPens, for example, has an immediate impact because of the absence of significant alternatives. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the better, better one, the guy just, I mean, these people, are, these people are rewarded for results, which is why they get to these positions. My wife worked for a person very much like that. 
who, who I, I then advised her to record with her phone the conversations that, that were, were taking place. And this fellow uh, in the better.coms, this, this was years ago, my wife was working for this fellow, um, but for the better.com guy, you know, his comment about you're too slow, you're slow, 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 you're being a bunch of dumb dolphins, you know, because he was basically suspecting everybody of only working for a couple of hours a day from the work from home until you just fired everybody. Uh, um, and it just the way that the way that uh, he he thinks about his own people. I mean, Graham, you're talking about the CEO's first job is to look after their people. Yeah. You know, this, this guy is displaying that the first job is not that at all. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's contempt for him, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's this dichotomy. You have those that, that are of the Milton Friedman School of Economics where the primary concern is to maximise shareholder returns and then you have the other, which is very much the... Even like Richard Branson, like he said, at the end of the day, the most important people in his organisations are his people. So you've sort yep. of got that complete opposite uh, end of the spectrum as to what's the most important activity. I think that I think the upside, well, upside, downside, which is the way you're looking at it, for the likes of the better.coms, you know, I think it rep- the reputational damage that that's created that organisation because you're going to have so many people going, well, why would I go and work for an asshole like that? Clearly, it's a company that doesn't give a shit about its people. So yeah. um, so I think there's that reputational cost because, you know, and that's why yeah. they have this sort of annual employer of choice awards. And it's a, it's for those that enter those awards, it's very prestigious to be rated in the top 100, you know, employer of choice companies because they are the people, they are the organisations, particularly at the moment, who are attracting staff uh, and the ones that don't take care of the people are the ones that are struggling for staff right now because we have like pretty much a staff shortage all over the planet. Um, I don't mm. quite understand the reason for it, but anyway, that's what's happening, certainly here in Australia. It doesn't matter whether you're an accountant, a cabinet maker, a hospitality, people are just screaming for staff. They just cannot get staff, and many are closing down because they haven't got staff to operate. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, and it it, it kind of goes to show how important the movement of people around the world is. Correct. Um, Because it really is, it's like sheep shearers, right? You you go in, you shear the the sheep and you go to the next farm. And and we're we're seeing that on a global scale and COVID has stopped that movement. Correct. Well, Western Australia typically has between 30 and 40,000 international backpackers as part of our economy at any one given time. Well, they're not here. Mm, and yep. they are the people who particularly serve the coffees and pick the fruit. Um, and there's there's basically horticulturalists who are just ploughing in their crops because there's no one to pick them. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And we're yep. seeing in the UK, right, they've lost the Eastern European labour force, so mm. no one to drive the trucks, no one to pick yep. the fruit from the, you know, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah the, the, that people dynamic's been an interesting part of it. But I, I saw, I think, next week Australia's opening up and, international students are one of the first groups to be let back in yeah back in new south wales yep yep yeah yeah so slowly slowly right but yeah but it's yeah. a interesting one but yeah but that better better.com i don't know but we you know we've seen you know the ceo of marriott when this first all broke out the pandemic broke out and he, he was he was crying he was heartbroken you know and it was yep. a really genuine sort of outreach of emotion and and care for his people to this point where you've got someone like that, like you say, with the reputational damage, but just the fact that we have leaders like that in business today who haven't got the message of this time. Yeah, you know, this is a time of kindness, empathy, humanity, 
and then you see stories like that break and it, it just I, I think you know we we're talking about now Joe you were talking about the wealthy sort of stepping up I think a lot of very, very wealthy people, and we've seen it. There was a, a fascinating article in the Atlantic a long time ago about um, Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg, and the rest of the sort of Facebook team, the MBA sort of leadership team of them, and their complete disconnection from the reality of life, completely mm. disconnected. And I think we we struggle to comprehend that, and because we can't comprehend it, um. We, we're we're always in conflict with this idea of what we expect from them and what they can deliver, and and I think it creates a lot of conflict because they're not capable of delivering because they can't see what we see. Do you, does that make sense? Well, I think it's understandable. I mean, if you live in a bubble where you where the thought of knowing where you're going to sleep tonight or where your next meal is coming from has never ever been part of your life. Um, it's understandable that why would it enter their their thinking because it's just yeah. something completely fine. It's a bit yeah. like me going well, whether whether should I buy a seven a seventy five meter yacht or a hundred meter yacht. I mean, it's not part of my mindset, so I, I would struggle to cope in that space. You know, I'll have to tell you, the hundred meters are are a bitch to park. It's just <laughs> <laughs> the marina costs go up after eighty seven uh, feet, yeah. and those valets. Oh, don't trust them, please. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but but it, th- then the other thing I, I sort of look at is, you know, it's a mortgage company, better Better.com is a mortgage company, and their entire business is based on numbers, ability to pay. It's not about personal. It's not about feeling for the person. It's about yes. show me the numbers. And- oh, no, but they, they, they got a massive injection of funds recently, so the, the financial argument actually wasn't valid for this. Oh, no, uh, yeah, what I mean is it's the culture of the organization to be focusing. Right. It, it's computer says no. It's that it's that sort of, you know, mm. <laughs> sort of person. I mean, I was asked um, a number of years ago, uh, I got a call to speak to the ultra net worth account managers of a, of a major international bank. And my the, the, the person from HR was saying, we want what we want is you to do a presentation for them. We want these people to give us their heart. So this is the relationship managers that worked for a bank with ultra ultra high net worth customers, and the brief was we want them to give us their heart to be really attached to the financial institution. And I'm like, well, you know, what's the reward and recognition structure? Is that changing at all? And no, it isn't. So if they don't no. perform, they're out. So yeah, why yeah. would they give you their heart? I mean, they're not, yeah. you know, they're not going to do that. It's just like, it's a, it's utterly, it's a preposterous recommend. It's a preposterous request because you're not backing it up with your structures and it, the way that you're going to help them. And I've seen, I, I was in another presentation for a bank where I was brought in as the motivational speaker. And the first thing that the, um, the, CEO of that particular group said is look they've left they've gone it's done and if if you keep complaining you're gone too you're welcome to take the door you you're welcome to walk out the door none of this nonsense blah 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 anyway tim come on up i'm, just, I'm like ah oh, crap you know <laughs> now motivate them yeah. yeah it's interesting about better.com being a a mortgage company um, a company that I refer to sometimes in my customer service workshops is uh, is Quicken Home Loans, which is now the 
the number one supplier of residential home loans uh, in America. And they talk about service on the lunatic fringe. They have a policy in their company that every email, every telephone call will be returned by close of business uh, at the end of each day. No, no exceptions, totally non-negotiable. And even the CEO will say, if, even if you're unable to reply to an email, email me and I'll reply on your behalf. So you've got this other end of the spectrum where service to their customers is their absolute number one um, priority. And surprise, surprise, they've become the number one in their industry in the US. You know, so you mm. sort of compare that with better.com, both in the same industry. One's obviously got, um, yeah, just different CEOs with a completely different opposite mindset. Yeah. All right. Well, should we uh, move on to the theme, time to play a higher game? So we're, I'm looking forward to this. So like as we've been talking about today and for the last few months, you know, the world's going through one of the great resets. And yep. if we get it right, we have a chance at creating a future for our children and grandchildren. And if we get it wrong, well, who knows, right? What? Sorry? <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm, t- I'm trying to talk to my kid without looking at it. I was doing some ventriloquism, uh, ventriloquism with very bad mic technique. So here, here we go. Right. I'll turn off my microphone. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so Graham Harvey uh, works with his clients to help them play a higher game. And I think, you know, while most of us, can't or don't think we can drive global change, we can always manage ourselves. So Graham, whether an individual, a leader, someone working in business, an entrepreneur, or in any other roles that we humans play in life, how do we play a higher game? Great question. In fact, I think we've been talking, there's been several references in our conversation for the last hour about the differences uh, by those who are playing a higher game versus those who who, who aren't. In... Um, so I guess I've been pushing the customer service barrow since uh, 19, 1986. And in more recent times, um, the commencement of my both keynotes and trainings asks, I throw up a, a slide which simply has the, the logos of the uh, New Zealand All Blacks, Apple Computer and Harvard University. And my question is, what is it that these three organizations have in common? So there's general discussion about, well, you know, the Obviously, the All Blacks play a pretty good game of rugby and um, branding and they're all well-known and uh, and so on and so forth. And then someone will come up and say, well, hang on, um, you know, they're all good at what they do. But I think one of the key strengths, which is the answer to the question, is that the success of those three organisations um, is underpinned by a very strong, what I call, culture of excellence. So if you look at the New Zealand All Blacks, they are the most successful professional sports team on the planet, any sport, any code, any country. Um, if you look at their their win-loss ratio since their first game back in 1903, uh, overall it's around 80%. In more recent years, it's closer to, to 90%. So, so any team that comes up against the New Zealand All Blacks has got close to a 90% chance of, of losing. Uh, I have to admit that they have lost two or three games in the last um, in, in this last season. But anyway, in a normal year, they have a a good winning rate. Um, and then you look at Apple, which, you know, from 1976 by two young guys, both named Steve, operating from their dad's garage, suddenly turned this um, this idea into what's now the world's most valuable company, valued at over $2 trillion US dollars. Um, if you've got a pencil, just write two followed by 12 zeros. It's a, it's a lot of zeros. And then, of course, you have Harvard that in um, 2036 will celebrate its 400th 
um, uh, anniversary. So it's obviously been around a while. And as we all know, for, for companies to have that sort of sustainability over the long term, they're clearly doing something right. So you have this thing called what I call culture. So um, the definition that I have, and I'll read it for you because it really just um, um, sums it up, but that culture is the why and the way that we do things around here. The cumulative result of the interplay between the organization's mission, or as I prefer to call it, a purpose, its vision, its values, and I tend to use principles, which is a little bit more uh, encompassing of, of values and ethics and, and, and morals. The ethics, the norms, the systems, the symbols, the language, the assumptions, the beliefs, and the habit. In other words, I talk about that your culture really is your organizational uh, DNA. It's your, it's your genetic code. It's, it's the way that we do things around here. And, of course, underpinning the culture are the values. Uh, and the values you could uh, compare to the foundation stones of, of a building. I was working with a, um, an upmarket building company in Perth just last week, and I said the analogy of, do you know that uh, you can build a flash-looking home, but after a few months you start to see sort of cracks appearing where the, where the wall meets the ceiling and suddenly there's a, there's a crack in the tile on the bathroom floor and you know instantly that the problem is actually not to do with the floor or the walls or the ceiling. It's to do with the foundations upon which the building is actually sitting. And it's the same thing for, um, for organizations. So I talk about values as the foundation stone that support that culture, the filters through which the importance of organizational choices and activities are assessed, um, whereas ethics are more to do with the moral stance that help an organization decide between right and wrong. So together, the values and ethics provide the operating philosophies and principles that guide an organization's internal conduct and behaviors, as well as its relationships with customers, clients, partners, shareholders, and all other stakeholders. Now, interesting thing about values is that if I want to know what someone's real values are, I just simply sit back and watch their behavior, because ultimately, it's our values that drive our, our behavior. Um, we've all seen value statements nicely printed and framed sitting behind the sitting in reception or, or nicely laid out on a website. But one of my um, in, in my work is the quote is that that I use is that a value not lived is actually not a value. It's simply an aspiration, or worse, it's some sort of cynical marketing ruse. Um, you know, a value to be a value is something that is non-negotiable, no exceptions. No correspondence shall be entered. It's something that's steadfast. And, of course, what's been happening with COVID is that values are most tested when the pressure comes on. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a temptation to take a shortcut, to get this out the door or whatever it is. Um, but the companies that are really, you know, not only surviving but striving in this pandemic marketplace are the ones that are rigidly staying steadfast to their, to their values, uh, even though... They are being tested to the nth degree to perhaps want to compromise or take some shortcuts in the um, the implication, or not the implication, the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, basically adhering to their to, to their values. So it's because it's those values ultimately that determine um, behaviour. So in playing a higher game, it's 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 really taking 
looking at analysis of what many of those um, values are. And I'd be um, certainly happy to pass it on to you, Andrea, for passing out to those that want access to it. I have a little exercise called a values exercise, which simply starts off with, and I say simple tongue in cheek, it starts off with 450 different values. And then it's a process of distilling, distilling, distilling those values down to the values that apply to us either as individuals or uh, to our organizations. And then it's about the, the understanding, the agreement, and the adherence to those values by you know, across the whole organization. So the values become part of the recruitment process because you're not only looking people who where the chemistry is right and they have the right skill set on their resume, but the most important part that I see in recruitment is that they share the same values as the organization they're about to work for. So as an example, going back to the All Blacks, the All Blacks will tell you that they're, in fact, there are far better rugby players not playing in the All Blacks than what there are. But, of course, whilst they might be good at playing rugby, they're not particularly good at playing team. And that's the reason why they're not in the All Blacks, because playing team is about adhering to the values of the team. Yeah. So playing a higher game, it's this whole thing. So the game, the game is called excellence. And the, uh, the final slide of my workshops is, well, if not excellence, then what? If not now, when? And if not you, who? Uh, and so, I mean, when you ask that, answer that, ask that question, if not excellence, then what? Well, the answer to the what is obviously something less than being excellent. And I guess my question is, why would you get up in the morning and want to play a game that's less than, than excellent? Um, mm. Because there's so many lost opportunities in playing a mediocre game rather than an excellent game. So it's really getting uh, helping businesses get real clear around what their, their values are. Because the, the reality of it is every single one of us individually or as a family or as a business, we actually already have our values, but many just haven't taken the time to get clear on what they are. So many of those values have sort of happened by default. They've sort of been brought along by the, the business owners or the senior people of the organization. Um, but when organizations do take the time to get really, really clear on these are our values, these are our non-negotiable standards, um, then the results that flow from that uh, are quite extraordinary. The current Governor-General of Australia, um, David General David Hurley, was famous some years back when he was head of the Australian Defence Force said, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. So you might have a standard of doing something a particular way, but due to time constraints or availability of resources or whatever, on this particular day, you settle for something less. That's the standard you have just walked past. So by default, that lesser standard becomes the new standard for your organisation, which, of course, is less than excellent. Um, Tom Watson who the founder of IBM was famous for saying, he said, um, you know, how long does it take to become excellent? And he said, you can become excellent today. You simply have to stop doing less than excellent work. Mm. So that becomes a concept that gets embraced by everyone on the team. Um, so I guess that's in a nutshell of, of the work. And, of course, that then, under, that then leads into what I talk about, my six senses of service, which underpins my uh, Design Deliver Delight workshop that Joe mentioned right at the beginning, where I look at service, 
So I talk about uh, a great customer experience as being a combination of everything that your customers see, hear, smell, taste, touch. And of course, the big one is how do they viscerally or emotionally connect with your people, your products and your services. So it's about being excellent across those those six senses, what I call the six senses of service, um, because that's where the behavior takes place. And of course, that behavior is rooted in the clarity and agreement of, of the values that underpin the culture of the organization. So it's a choice point, as um, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, uh, recognized in all that research. The great companies at some point in their history actually made the decision to be great. And it's that same thing happens with, with whether it's a small um, solopreneur like I or a, a multi-organization like a BHP or a mobile oil or whatever. There is a point in time where the organization decides at what level is it going to play the game. And of course, my question is, why would you not play a game, play the top game, the higher game called excellence? So, yeah. so do 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 you think that there is a a mindset, an employee mindset, perhaps? Because when those organizations decided to be great or excellent, mm-hmm. from good to great, um, uh, do you think that? You know, there was a team of people saying, "Well, how? What's our what's our goal? Well, this is what we're going to head towards, and to do that, we need to raise everything to this level." Do you think that there, there is a mindset of what can I what what is the least I can get away with? Well, that comes back to I guess McGregor's theory X, theory Y, where um, way back in management history, where theory X basically was that all all employees are lazy bastards and they want to get paid the maximum amount for the least amount of work. When in reality, the research is that most people are theory why they're actually turn up each day wanting to do an above average job. But often it's the environment and not having the resources to do an above average job. And I think that so going hand in hand uh, in deciding to play that higher game, leadership has to make sure that people have. Um, so it's so my definition of leadership is make is to basically paint the paint the paint the vision, employ the right people, make sure they have the skill set and the resources to do the best possible job, and then get out of their way and let them get on with it. But what stops so many people in organisations is not having the clarity of their role, um, the support of leadership, or the resources to actually do their job. Be interesting to apply this to Better.com. <laughs> we can I want to go back to the values piece because I think you know. So one of my one of my pre, when I first set my business up, it was all about uh, creating the content, the messaging for businesses, right? So the values, the mission, the, all that stuff, right? So I, I really get the message that you, that you were talking about, and then as a comms person, helping instill that within the organisation because there's no point creating the words if nobody believes in the words. Correct. But but on the other side, having worked in the big global corporations. One of the things that I kept noticing is that people, I, I talk about it in my book a lot, but people are not anchored in their own personal values. They don't know what their values are or they've forgotten what their values are or they don't understand the importance of their personal values. And so I always say they always get knocked off. They're, they're not anchored in it, right? So, you know, and young people coming into a big organisation, they they you, you, I watch them just completely change from the person that turned up within a year 
you know, there's a darkness in their spirit that wasn't there yep. when they arrived, right? And it's not just their naivety dying. It's it's also just the influences around them. They weren't strong enough within themselves to hold on to who to the they culture. were. Yeah. Correct. And um, it was such a – and I used to always look – I mean, I was always keeping an eye out for the young, bright-eyed kids and making sure that, you know, oi, you – you're getting sucked in by the darkness. Don't do it. Yep. <laughs> Keep hold of yourself, you know. But I think for some reason we're not, you know, self-awareness, um, who we are, what we stand for, what we believe in. We 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 leave everything at the door and we, we're moving in the world almost, oh God, it's as close to zombified as we can, right? But we're, we're just, we, we're, we're not just connect, disconnected from earth, we're disconnected from self. So yeah, I and I think it comes back to that research that shows about, we're talking about also about wealth. There was one research that shows that the, the basic uh, level of income happiness is about 75000 US dollars, where beyond that, you basically all your day-to-day needs are taken care of, where you have lots of people joining an organisation, particularly in the younger years. I mean, essentially, they are there, a lot of them driven by a paycheck because they need something to buy the food and put put a roof over their heads. Um, but there's an interesting thing about the the culture. A lot of it's set. Going back to Tim's um, question about who who sets the culture. Um, so one of my uh, clients, they run uh, down in the Margaret River region. They run a very big um, tourism organisation. They have a big restaurant attached to it. So as an example of the culture of that organisation, you can have a um, a new member to the team, let's say 18 years old, working as a server in the restaurant. The culture of that organisation is such that that server, even though they may have only been on the payroll for 48 hours, can basically tell the chef to do the to do to cook the meal again. Now, classic example: they have a lot of family groups, and one of their favourite dishes for kids is their as their chicken nuggets, which are all made by hand in the kitchen from chicken, breast meat, crumbed, and everything else. On the wall is a picture of the chicken nuggets where the shade of the uh, the browning of the crumbs through the fryer is a certain level. The Anyone in that team, from the CEO down to anyone on the team, if they happen to spot, say, some chicken nuggets at the pass that are either darker than the desired amount or lighter than the desired amount, they can refuse to take it, give it back to the chef and ask them to do it again. Now, Imagine that, an 18-year-old kid off the street telling a veteran chef to cook the meal again because it's not done right. Now, that's the quality of that culture that is totally supportive and encourages that behaviour. Mm. Oh, there's two There's two aspects to that. As somebody who was a waitress for many years to get myself through university, uh, chefs are not the nicest people in town, so bravo. Second yeah. of all, a business that actually wants to represent its food is the same as the photographs on the wall. That's impressive because, you know, yeah. often what you see on the wall is not the slop that you get on your plate. So Correct. Correct. nice job. <laughs> when was the last burger you bought looked like the ad on the outside on the display? On the screen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that, but so it has to be lived particularly by those in charge. They, they are virtually the controllers of the culture. Um, yeah. And you have, because you can't, so I always talk about customer service starts in the boardroom. It always feels too far away from me. Because, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, if you think about, you know, you know, I work for Microsoft, right? Yeah. It's, it's boardroom is so far away yes. to where you are sitting in Asia working for a company like that. So to me, 
to me, it's in the camaraderie within the community. It's in it's in the interplay between the hierarchy. It's yep. whether it's a kick up, kiss up, kick down culture. Um, if bullies are, ra- are praised and raised, um, you know, but I guess Graham, I guess Graham's saying that if it's not in the boardroom, there will be a a disconnect point, and there'll be a bunch of managers here trying to make yep. it a great culture, but there'll be a point here where it's allowed to be crap. Correct. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if it's boardroom down, it's it it's really it's the DNA of the company. Yeah. Correct. Rather than the clothes it's wearing. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, Microsoft. I felt I when Satya came on board, I felt it from him. I always felt it from the leaders, but I really felt it from him. Yep. And and it deepened into a more spiritual. Correct. So it, there was more spirituality behind the meaning of the culture of Microsoft when he took over from Barma. And that was something that really, really resonated strongly with me, and yeah. and and people believed him. Yeah, it wasn't well, Amer- that, it wasn't that Americanism? Anyone taking over from Barma? No, but but I loved Barma. I thought he was absolutely amazing. <laughs> I thought he was brilliant, and I think he's been judged very harshly. I thought he was, you know, he just he was him. He was him, you know, unapolo- unapologetically. I've been in a very small room with him with his stick, and it's very noisy, right? But he's just him, and um, yeah, it didn't always translate well out into the world, right? But um, Satya was, yeah, you know, I think leaders leaders embody the spirit of, a, of an organisation too, right? Well, I mean, effectively, <laughs> if you think of the culture of, of Apple, I mean, mm. Steve Jobs was, you know, by all accounts, not the nicest person to, to work with, but there was certainly no questioning around the clarity of his values. And, yeah. um, you know, one of their corporate values is about, uh, as a, as I haven't got it at my hands, but one of their values, all on their website, is about the is about saying no. They know where their lanes are, and of course, that was epitomised when he came back to Apple, what ninety seven, and after a few weeks, got all his management team together and said, one of the reasons we're about to go bankrupt is because this organisation has become so bloated. Um, since I've been away, our product line has grown to three hundred and fifty. Effectively, get rid of three hundred and forty and choose ten. Yeah. Now, of course, there were lots of egos and wealth and incomes attached to lots of people with those 340 products. But, you know, he said, you can't be all things to all people. You've got to decide who who we're best at. And so what we have to do is learn to say no to 340 and say yes to the things that we're best at. So uh, that's a culture of clarity. This is who we are. This is what we do. And we don't do the rest of it. Yeah. You know, it's a great um, Oracle reached out to me once and uh, there was a uh, event uh, they were doing what are they called evangelist roles coming up mm-hmm. and i just i can never work for oracle it's not yeah. that i just like the people that work for oracle i can't do the culture it's too it's too much machismo right and that yeah. came from larry <laughs> um, absolutely right from being switched yeah. on to that right yeah, yeah. but being switched on to yeah. the culture and it, i think it matters Our oracle should have been able to foretell that <laughs> oh, oh, oh. all right um any other news that you guys thank you graham that was that was great really insightful and again one of those conversations we could have all day um, absolutely actually just before you wind up on that one i just think it's a it's a it's a good little call to action for those listening to really just sort of invest have a bit of a think about your values personal values and how they and how they leverage or or match i guess with the organization then think about your organization as well and that, you're also your own right yeah your, your own, own first, i think is just like well, let's give let's give some examples for me a value is i'm a person of my word what's a what's a value for you guys 
Well, I have four values. It spells life. Uh, it's four words. So it's love, integrity, flow, and excellence. So love is about empathy and kindness underpin all my decisions. Um, integrity is about doing the right thing or, you know, always. Um, sorry, integrity is where my actions match my words always. Uh, flow is the marker for being uh, responsible on purpose and on, ta- on task and on purpose. And excellence is about doing the best I can whenever I can. And so um, it's it's and that's distilled from down from four hundred and and fifty. And the other thing, just finally on on values, is that they also slowly evolve over time. So you know, as things change, it's so don't be afraid to change values. And and mostly, it's a it's a tightening of the values that I true evolution of values. Things happen. You go, you know, we need to tighten up a little bit in that, so you can tweak and fine tune your values in accordance with. Um, you know, I guess what the demands of the business, the marketplace, and so forth happen. So don't be afraid to uh, do a, you know, twice a biannual refresh of, of values and vision and those sorts of different things. Um, businesses yeah. can, can continues to evolve. Yeah, but, but you guys got a couple of values that are important to you. Tim, Joe, Joe, Joe needs to think about what, what, what. Most people do. It's important, right? So, yeah, no, no, for me, I think I think fairness is probably one of the, the the big ones. I've always had a sense for 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 justice, trying to, to think yeah. about what is fair, and I and I'm not necessarily. It's it's it's. I'm also one of the pettiest and most vengeful people I know. Uh, <laughs> I've had I've had an entire voiceover career because I had a teacher who just thought I couldn't do it, and I said, "I'll show you." Yeah, um, so and uh, stubbornness is a value. <laughs> Oh, it, it is. I, I, it's 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 a value, and it's a it's the worst thing possible because I I I I will not say die, and I will yeah. just without saying too much about this. You know, I'm 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 engaged in uh, a disagreement with the wife currently, which is on the smallest of things, right? I mean, the capitulation for me would be as very simple to go like, I'm sorry. That that, that would all that, that would be all it would have to do uh, to fix that. But it would mean that I would have to give up on this idea of being fair because there was this other thing about this particular exchange, which I thought was very, very important to me, but I didn't want to give up on. So, uh, so yeah, that, so that's yeah, the, probably it. It's, it's fairness and, and, and it, values can serve us and they can also play against us. And, I, and, I, think, mm-hmm. and I think I've paid a pretty high price for my values. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So you need to learn yeah. the value: happy wife, happy life. You've obviously. I'm uh, just. Yeah. I'm just. Uh, <laughs> you missed that one. Uh, well, that's, that's that's what Graham was talking about. Just walking past it, right? That that, that is the thing you learn. I, I think the the the, the value or, or the or the, the the solution or the strategy in life is to figure out what your values are and figure out the times when you can walk past and should walk past. Uh, there's some mm. fights that are worth fighting for, and there's some fights that are ne- never worth getting into. And right. and, and when I learned the lesson. Uh, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's why there's a block button on social media. You just let it go sometimes. Yeah. yeah. My husband and I have a if it's important to you, it's important to me. Value, and yep. it doesn't, and we don't pull it out very often. But when one of us pulls it out, the other one has to go. Got you. Um, yeah. I don't get it. Doesn't matter. It's important to you. It's important to me. So yep. maybe maybe that might help you. <laughs> that's cool. Yep. It's the blue, Tim. Yeah, I mean, I've spent a bit of time sort of whittling it down. I really agree with 
Graham's idea of that it it is something that it it's almost like when I was a teenager working out who do I want to be with from a relationship perspective, it was only something I could really kind of discern eventually. I mean, there were some things I could choose, but only going through a lot of a number of relationships and just going, nah, that's not what I want. What I and, and by knowing what I don't want, I figured out what I did want, and then I could right. sort of work it out a little bit. Um, but so I kind of did that with some of the values. But when Joe said fairness, I just went, actually, that is one of mine as well. But yeah. if I had to choose four, uh, I, I wanted them. I came up with faith, family, fun, and impact. And and that there there are some challenges in those because they they because fun can mean that I don't do a bunch of things because it's not fun. So so, but impact means that I still have to do them uh, if I want to make the impact. So it's it's yeah it's it's um, there's some challenges there. And then I was thinking you know justice because I've often said if I were to be a superhero I'd probably be a superhero in some corporate office, you know, working out how to take out the bully. <laughs> yeah, that would be my that would be my sort of by by my, my super like I would, I'd have all these sort of setups to get rid of to get rid of the founder of better.com. I mean it's his company. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah. it would be to take out people like that because that, that was just the thing that sort of irks me is this sort of bullying by power. Yeah. But but um in, in terms of evolution, yeah. it's interesting interesting you say fun, Tim, because my life basically the F originally started off as fun and then it evolved to freedom. And then because I've been doing a lot of work in the flow space, it's like it's become flow, which is sort of, so that's just an, just a simple example of, but I had to do it with F because otherwise it wouldn't have spelt life and I was a bit attached to that. So anyway. Well, I wanted four Fs. I wanted four Fs, but I couldn't come up with one for impact. But but the fun actually at one point was fitness. And then yes. I just went, it's not really my value. I mean, yeah. You know, I've got a treadmill that I don't use. It's if it was my value, I'd be, I'd be, you know. So I, it, it's it's an ideal, but it's not really what I live. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that I was talking. About. If it's not lived, it's an aspiration. It's not a value. Yeah, uh, but, but yeah, that's well, a really important point. It's 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 the core of your. It's the core of how you live your life. Right. That's what a value but, is, right? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, overeating is one of my values. <laughs> it's the indulgent that's another eye with impact yes indulgent. Oh, there, you go. there you go all right um any other news quirky news off the cuff stuff that you guys picked up i've got one great story i loved i love this headline you guys do it no? well I, i'm mindful that i'm holding you back and the kids from uh christmas fair so i i don't want to tell uh, a long right. and winding story um i heard about this uh this catfish story from the uk which uh which really got me it was uh it was where someone was cat you know the idea of catfish right someone pretends to be someone else and then they lead you along with relationships and all those different kind of things right uh this particular uh catfishing story uh, ran for 13 years uh, someone led someone to believe that they were someone else for that that period of time, uh, but when you look at the twists and turns along the way, uh, it's just amazing. It went as far as to have that that person in the the the, the, the fictitious character uh, died, uh, then was 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 not dead, was actually part of witness protection. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and when 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 he died, there was actually a Facebook group that was set up as well, where some thirty odd people uh, came together to mourn his loss. Um, 
it, it, it went, uh, it, it, it was a bizarre, bizarre story as to why would someone bother to do that. And uh, the perpetrator was someone who at the time uh, was only 13 years old and just uh, the, the cousin of this poor woman. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, had so much darkness in her that she kept it going for <laughs> for all wow. these years. Uh, so all, all this information came out in, in legal documents and, the, and, 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 and the, the suit and stuff like that. But yeah, it was just the, the longest con game with no particular good reason. Yeah, wow. definitely not someone anchored in their values, right? Uh, the, the my mother invented a brother one. <laughs> oh. yeah. I mean, she was an only child, and she, at school she invented an older brother. And then all her friends wanted to meet him. And then she, she so she shipped him off to the army and got him killed. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Um, that was a bit dramatic, but so the the the, the prime minister <laughs> of Finland is a lady called Sana Marin. I think she's the youngest female mm-hmm. prime minister in the world. Anyway, uh, there was a headline: Finland's PM sorry for clubbing after COVID contact. Now, um, she didn't do the wrong thing; she made a mistake, all that sort of stuff. But I just like the idea of a prime minister clubbing. I think that's really cool. <laughs> and I want to move to Finland. That was was that clubbing as in dancing or clubbing yeah. as in fur seals? <laughs> it crossed my I, mind. I, 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 I pictured her dancing. Oh, not, okay, not, cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to. Shows where our mind goes, Tim. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, no, it was good. And then the final thing is what's keeping you distracted at the moment? Um, I can tell I you. Have... Open the cover to the place called DeFi in crypto, um, and it is mind-boggling. Uh, every single thing that almost every single bank does has uh, been turned into code and runs at the speed of light. And you see companies, uh, or at least ideas, come and go, evolve and move. Uh, and in a matter of days, you see the result of whether or not the, the, the greater co- economy or the greater community has thought that was a great idea. Uh, but it's it's crazy. Uh, I've, I've, I've been working with things where the interest rates, uh, the the average, they call this the, the, the it's, a, it's an annual interest rate, but uh, uh, it's expressed in a number that takes three lines. It's, it's, it's I mean, it's a very large font, obviously, but... Uh, just crazy, crazy numbers, um, you know. So you know, it's, it's ROIs of of five times, you know, uh, in, in a few days, and it's just wild. It's just crazy. Um, and, and and at this stage right now, every, everybody's kind of saying is, bad things about it because it, it sounds like a bunch of really drugged up people on cocaine doing crazy things. Um, but but I think it's a little bit like the financial markets in real life, as in like something's happening in financial in the financial world as well that we don't fully understand all the time. Uh, but there's a bunch of people trying to figure out how to how to how to make a, a lot of money from it, uh, and not and not just make money, but also provide some some good from it. So DeFi is going to change the way people get loans. Uh, you know, uh, are going to be able to afford things. Uh, communities are going to be able to fund things because of DeFi. Um, but right now it's just this crazy, you know, way above my head in terms of, uh, in terms of understanding the whole thing, but just knowing what happens under the hood, it's very exciting. Well, you make me feel really good, Joe, because I started reading it and I, my, my eyes just glazed over. So to hear someone of your skill in that mindset, I feel, um, a lot better. (laughs) 
thinking, <laughs> how on earth am I going to get my head around this? I mean, I got, I sort of got the principle, but start to scratch below the surface, so I go, I'm out of here, you know. Yeah, it's trying to be someone that you have to understand the entire banking business. Yeah, and now you have only two minutes to make a decision. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so first of all, I, just you talking about whatever you're talking about doesn't make any sense to me. But I, I, are you talking about a book? No. Oh no. talking about crypto. I'm talking about cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency. It's a. It's no, an I, area no, of cryptocurrency. Got, okay. Okay. So it's a new area of cryptocurrency, or it's like a well centralization. Is, DeFi is an abbreviation. What does DeFi stand for again, Joe? I think it's just definance. It's just uh, it's like we we we're talking about decentralized finance. Uh, okay, where, gotcha. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where um, what what happens is that the idea is someone who's in charge of making loans or whatever it is, instead of that person being a real thing, uh, it goes it becomes code. Some 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 somebody creates this uh, thing that's in charge of that, and that creates yep. you know a, a loan structure. So, so it's the yeah. ultimate removal of the middleman. It is. So when you were talking about better. Uh, that actually is something like what the world might be like. So as horrible as it is, um, you know, uh, it sounds like a terrible thing for the people to 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 to, to lose out on it that way. Uh, it's coming anyway, as in yeah. it's going to so change the way the world works. It's, it's so it's the algorithm of money and and how you can get it, which also will mean that the poorer people of the world and people without great access to technology are once again going to suffer, right? Well, but the most maybe, important maybe question not. here is how do you spell DeFi? Is it D-E-F-I? So it's D-E capital so F-I. So. Anyone's looking for this? Capital D-E capital F-I. It, it allows, <laughs> it, it, it's a system that allows customers access to financial products directly on a decentralized blockchain network without having to go through, like, like Graham said, without having to go through middlemen or brokers brokerages mm-hmm. which yeah. theoretically should make them the banks either a lot more profitable or those financial institutions more profitable because they don't have to pay the middlemen or the products cheaper which could help the poor so when it's when it's run properly or when when the that, that's why it's such an egalitarian idea because it's mm-hmm. the, the idea of it is to take it take power away from central control uh, so DeFi literally runs without government intervention. It, it cannot interfere with that. It doesn't have a bank uh, involved in it as well. And even if a VC, for instance, is involved in, in DeFi, they cannot influence, they, they can't change what is actually uh, there because it's about code. It's it's about how this, this particular uh, digital finance product is designed to work. So um, it is. It is actually. It is in 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 many ways. It's going to democratize uh, finance. It does make someone who has, uh, you know, just just maybe just three hundred. It's it's. I mean, it's always going to be a scale. You have absolutely no money. It's, you look on the outside looking in. You go like, oh, I can't. I can't participate in this. But at the same time, uh, it's going to set up things so that it, it will be possible for. Uh, like like things like micro loans right now. For me, it's always been bizarre how micro loans work and the interest rate of micro loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're looking for a micro loan, DeFi might give you a better solution than than, than micro loans. Mm-hmm. I can have a look. All right. The Tim? challenge, the challenge, of course, is that government governments need control over the finances, and so out of everything that has been transformational, internet, everything else over the last couple of decades. This is the one that that impinges most on the sovereignty of a country, 
um, and its currency, and as a result, would prob uh, has the biggest risk of of roadblocks going up from a legislative perspective, and that's why it's such thin ice in a sense. It's the whole crypto yeah. world has that same same challenge, really. All right. So obviously, I've done a lot of a lot of study with Buckminster. Yeah, I've done a lot of study with Buckminster Fuller's theories, and one of the things that Bucky was. I mean, there's obviously a lot of investment now in solar, but he said one of the biggest problems with government not wanting to embrace solar is because no one's developed a meter between the sun and your roof. So again, it's like where where will government take its slice of the action? And I agree with you, Tim, that's going to be the biggest barrier to it because there really is no option for government to take a slice of the action in DeFi. Yep. Yeah, but then we were talking earlier that governments are, basically losing all the money and it's going into mm. private hands anyway. So yeah. anyway, let's have a look into it. We can maybe finish the chat next week when we've got a little bit more intelligence. Well, me, obviously. Tim, what's keeping you distracted? Uh, first of all, a stupid news story, and that was a camel beauty contest has been rocked by Botox allegations oh and a Botox God. scandal for camels. <laughs> what's happening? So, what's happening to the world? Yeah, this has been uh, Saudi authorities have have, have <laughs> got a crackdown on the camel beauty contestants in Dubai, um, and is there a podiatry section in the contest by any chance? It's, really, it's hilarious. It's so it's so ridiculous. So, but anyway, um, yeah. Uh, it just so, reminded so, me. Of, it just reminded <laughs> me of a terrible story, which I won't go into, about the French Foreign Legion and the camel selection. Um, but it's a whole different story. I won't even go there. <laughs> yeah, that that one sounds like one that needs a beer and a bar, <laughs> and and so that everybody can drink to forget. Uh, which, of course, is why they joined the Foreign Legion in the first place. The um, the the thing that's keeping me distracted, I guess, apart from scanning, which I think I was doing last week. Was I scanning last week? Yeah, you were. Okay, so so just to, to update Graham, I, I basically wanted to clear out the storeroom of all oh, these yeah, papers yeah. that I've mm -hmm. been storing for millions of years. And so I sort of set up a bench with my mobile phone and the Genius Scan app, which is a fabulous app, um, just sitting there scanning all these papers and throwing them out. Um, of course, I could have just thrown them out and not scanned them, but I, I figured I've been keeping them for 20 years for some reason. But instead of reading them all, I just scanned most of them. I, I had a bit of a browse. So I did a bit of that this week. And the other thing I've been doing is um, catching up on a few episodes of Foundation on Apple TV, which is Isaac Asimov's ah. sort of sci-fi super series from millions of years ago that Apple have finally turned into a um, one of their one of their big TV shows that they did. So it's quite beautifully done. A bit yeah, slow, nice. but at the same time, really, really quite um, deliberate and yeah, really nice. I like it. You, you don't. You don't have to say slow. You said Asimov. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Yeah, I guess. I guess it. it it's in no way abridged. But no, yes, Asimov. Okay. All right, Graham. Um, I always find this time of the year a little bit daunting because it's almost like my head goes. Oh, it's too close to Christmas to start sort of prospecting and making sure that there's some stuff on the in the book for next year. And so then you sort of, what are we going to fill the day with? And then I'm still finishing my um, second book. And um, so it's probably not so much distraction. It's almost a little bit of a lack of lack of daily direction because it's not as though you can sort of pick up the phone and, and book or something in, but whatever. So there's a number of things that. In terms of that, I've, I've only just started looking at it, but also going to Apple TV, Tim, is uh, the new... 
um, Peter Jackson Get Back, which of course is the the six yeah. hours of the of the Beatles. Uh, I watched an interview with uh, of Steve Colbert interviewing Peter Jackson. So um, it's interesting, interesting stuff. So nothing specific distraction other than the fact probably a little bit of lack of direction, which is typical this time of the you know, December is obviously just you know it's it's too early to sort of start twenty twenty two, but give it another three weeks, I'll be back into it. So. Yeah, yeah, it is, you're right. It's a strange time of year. I've got to rush off to um, the kids' Christmas party. Well, it's not called Christmas. It's it's a multi multi faith you know community. Okay. So it's something else. Yeah. But um, and yeah, just like you know, like living in Phuket, I've sort of said to Steve, if you want to, you know, one of my kids wants this fantastic guitar, and I'm like, if he wants this fantastic guitar, we're we've got to get it. We've got to get it into the country pretty quickly, you know. And I've, I, I ended up doing a lot of research and finding somebody in Thailand who actually has this guitar here. So, oh, cool. um, but that's what this time of year is, right? It's just yeah. that, yeah. you know, but Steve and I, no gifts, no, none of that. Um, and I'm still trying to finish Versailles, which is the story of Louis the 14th, I think, um, which is on Netflix. And yeah, it's not brilliant, but I love it anyway. Um, don't, don't lose your head over it. Don't, don't, no, no, there's no beheadings in this. <laughs> oh, <I've> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's no beheading. What a dumb cut! Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's like the English sort of versions of those sort of things. There's a lot more blood and gore. Um, yeah, there's torture and stuff as there should be, but it's yeah, the sexiness isn't as sexy as you see in um, whatever the other British one was that came out. Downton Abbey. No, no, Downton Abbey didn't have any sex. I don't know. You were watching that for so so many times. I thought about oh, no, it. No, no, it's like no, no, no. It's just beautiful, just peaceful. I just needed brain peace. All right, no. so let's wrap up so I can head off to this party and you know do the right thing by my children. But Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it and appreciate your welcome. insights. And uh, Tim and Joe, always a pleasure. We're doing our last show next week for the year, and uh, the fabulous David Lim has agreed to join us. Another news junkie, and we're going to talk about. Retirement. There you go. So maybe the the crypto conversation will make sense to that as well. Mm. <laughs> Good. Unless it all Thanks, goes guys. belly shape, which means nobody's retiring. <laughs> well, yeah, right. But anyway, all right. So thanks, thanks, thanks for thanks for joining us, everyone. Really appreciate your time. And we'll see you next week for the final show for the year. All right. Thank you. Right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Graham. See You're you welcome. Guys. Thanks. about the week no show what's happening in our streets no show they'll help you understand all the latest issues going on in the land making sense of what's going on about the latest news affecting everyone no show they talk about the week no show what's happening in our streets no show no show